time of year when this happens, and it happens around this time each year. I called my wife into my office the other night uh, because uh, great horned owls were singing a duet in the darkness surrounding our home, and they sing that, who's awake? Me too. And they called back and forth, and it was a breeding pair alternating calls with a female's voice recognizably higher in pitch than the male's, even though she is a much bigger bird than he is. And sometimes their hoots overlapped one another. Perhaps one is correcting the other like long-time married couples do. But the owls were establishing boundaries for the breeding territory, and they begin nesting in January or February. We can all go, I've seen (laughs) owls on nests just covered in snow, which they probably like. It's probably warming. But laying their eggs, they don't build nests, so they lay their eggs in the nests of squirrels, hawks, herons, crows. Sometimes on a cliff ledge or in a hollow tree, the eggs will hatch in 30 to 37 days. And they're out there eating Karen's buddies, those little voles or sandwiches with legs for owls. (laughs) So it's it's a, a busy time of year for owls. And I have a red oak tree in the yard, and it finally dropped its leaves. It keeps them for a long time. It's called marcescence. And squirrels were out there gathering the withered leaves that fell to the ground, and they use them for bedding and insulation on their leaf nests. And I, I saw a hole in the snow, and it turned out to be a red squirrel cave. I'm looking at the hole, and a little squirrel head popped out of it and went, oh, oh, and it used its subway system for safer traveling and a quick getaway, because next time I saw it, it was a long ways away going through those caves. Uh, I got a neat card from John and Jamie Tennyson. They live in Clark's Grove. They have a Christmas tree farm there, so they see a lot of interesting creatures in those trees. They uh, have a deer carcass, not uh, somewhere on the property there, and they said there are hawks, eagles, and crows are visiting that. But I just think this is so cool when I get something from them. It's signed, John and Jamie, they're the parents, and then Will, Fred, Reuben, Noah, Joel, Thane, Clay, and a baby on the way. So that's right. They have seven boys and one on the way, and most of us are betting it'll be another boy, but uh, <laughs> I don't know that's, if that'll happen or not. But, uh, you know, it seems like the, the odds would be they'd have a girl, but you got to go by past history, and they're all wonderful kids. Eddie Hansen of Albert Lee said he has two possums coming to his feeder every day. I heard from a couple people uh, said there's thousands of robins in Lesseur. I don't know about the Baltimore Oriole there. Uh, Chris Burke called and asked if the Baltimore Oriole was still sustaining or persisting in Lesseur, and I don't know if somebody's listening. Let me know, please. Cindy Smaby said, hi, Mr. Bat. Boy, I'm underlining the Mr. on <laughs> Mr. that. Bat. Wow. Hey, Mr. Bat. My name is Cindy Smaby, and I have a bird identification question that I know you've answered uh, some time ago. What are the birds who we always see in flocks on the shoulders of the highway, seemingly on the bitterly cold, blusterous of days, when they fly, their undersides are white, top sides are a light, muddy, beige, gravel-colored, 
Actually, they fly so fast it's hard to get a good look at them. Maybe a good nickname would, for them would be storm chasers. <laughs> I, I told Cindy that it was a horn lark, and I sent her a photo of one that I'd taken that morning. And she said, uh, thank you for your quick and courteous reply. I will have to see if I can find a recording of them on the Internet. Because I told her the ones I was taking photos of, the males were singing. And this, this is so cool, this part. Cindy says, my interest in birds began in the third grade wow. with Miss Carol Lundblad and her love of birds. I had just seen cedar waxwings for the very first time and did a book report on them in her class. That, that is really neat. It's, it's incredible, the power of one person. It's just uh, amazing. Oh, I, speaking of uh, incredible, I should mention before I forget, the world's oldest known wild bird is uh, Lazon albatross, 68 years old, named Wisdom, hatched a chick early this month in uh, northwest of Hawaii. Wait so a minute. She's a, 68, you said? 68. And she hatched a chick? Yep. That sounds like the, the story of Ruth and, and Abraham. <laughs> it does, yeah. She's just uh, it's incredible, and she... She's got it all down to a system, I'm sure. So the, I'm sure a lot of the other albatross moms come over and ask her advice on how to do all this. But, that, yeah, it's incredible. How common it is for a bird to get that old? You just heard about that sturgeon, that monster sturgeon somebody caught, and they yep. predicted that was 60 to 70 years old, which just amazed me that a fish, you know, just hanging around gets that old. So a bird 68 is amazing to me as well. Yeah, and she is the oldest known wild bird, so it's not uh, it's not common at all, let alone still uh, reproducing. It's sure. incredible. Uh, Don Grusing said a couple days ago I was cleaning the ice away from my feeders. Uh, the ice had actually plugged up the holes on one of those squirrel-proof jobs. Then just four feet away, a brown creeper landed on the trunk of an oak tree and inched up the suet feeder. I have the suet feeder on a tree trunk because brown creepers just seem more comfortable on the trunk and visit more often. What fun to see that tiny bird inch towards the suet, pick out tiny morsels off the bottom of the chunk. They're so small, they blend in so nicely with the bark and are just so obscure. I love to see them, no flash, no color, just working along the tree trunks, plugging away, trying to survive. I hope people will feed some suet on their tree trunks just to help these tiny visitors. Sometimes they drop down to the base of the tree and pick up the tiny morsels dropped and spilled by the woodpeckers as they whack away at the suet block. Uh, Bob Jansen. Uh, Bob is, uh, oh, he's one of the godfathers of birding in the state of Minnesota and uh, wrote a book, uh, is it Birding in Minnesota? It's a wonderful book that tells uh, when birds come and when you can see them. Uh, Bob said, Al, in the 1990s when I was working on getting to all 1,836 named places in Minnesota, and he did that. Wow. (laughs) Stopped at all of those. He said, I remember well getting to Bath. Uh, Bath, Minnesota is right by me. It's uh, kind of my home, only it's not there anymore. It's a ghost town. And Bob said, I was interested in finding out how he's got his name, Bath, in my book, 
Minnesota place names. It states that Bath was first named Porter, but was renamed Bath. April 15, 1859, after the name of a county seat of Steuben County, New York, the native town of Frederick W. Calkins, who had settled there in 1857. Still doesn't tell us what the name Bath comes from or why the name Bath originated. I did get to all 1,836 places in Minnesota by 1994, but I am doing bird surveys this year in Faribault in Freeborn counties once per week, so I'd like to see a black-billed cuckoo in Freeborn County. So he asked that I would contact him if I came across one. And uh, Bath, Minnesota, what it, our local historical society, which is a wonderful place, said that it was named after Bath, Maine, which got its name from that, the city in England. Uh, Tim Scott, of uh, just a, a longtime friend, said, Hi, Al, I've been feeding birds since 1974. My feed includes black sunflowers, thistle seeds, suet, ground peanuts, and peanuts. And on the deck where we can watch close up, I have counted 18 squirrels, raccoons, and woodpeckers galore. They all do damage to my feeders. One of the problems is plastic. Uh -oh. Plastic stuff doesn't hold up, and I have lots of missing parts, chewed up parts, stuff you find in the woods when the snow melts. I usually buy feeders from Menards and Pet Expo, but they quit carrying my favorite feeders. Boy. Isn't that true, Tim? If we like something, you know, I guess we should buy three of everything we really like because you can almost bet whatever it is, they're going to stop making it. <laughs> uh, Tim said I would cannibalize my old feeders for parts. Cheap plastic <laughs> works only for a day or so. I liked heavy plastic feeders with metal parts with slots the finches could use but the woodpeckers and squirrels couldn't destroy. My question to you is, do you have any suggestions for buying feeders? I have never spent as much as $20 for one. I don't like wood feeders much. I have never used a mesh wire feeder for thistle. Sunflower feeders are easier to find. Am I too cheap and have to live with feeder repair, or do I buy a few more sturdy, expensive feeders? And which feeders work best for you? Uh, Tim, I'm not even going to touch that, are you too cheap, because you and I are just alike, so you already know the answer to that. You know, I tell folks better is better, and I guess that applies to so many things. Uh, there are wonderful feeders. They do cost a bit more. True. Some come with uh, nearly lifetime guarantees. They're harder for things to chew up. They're, they just last a lot longer. Uh, they are uh, considerably more expensive, but I guess sometimes if you figure it in, if you're buying six $20 feeders or you buy one really nice one, you're ahead by buying the really nice one. There are some great recycled feeders out there that I find are much uh, more substantial. A lot of them will be made out of plastic, and again, they'll have a little higher price on them. Uh, Tim, I know you can make stuff, uh, so it, it's great to to make things. We used to do it with the kids. We'd make uh, 
we make things out of recycled materials, milk jugs and things like that. And if we got a week out of them, that was uh, that was pretty good. But then we got to make more. Have you seen so Ella, the the um, feeders they have at different stores? They're made out of recycled materials. They almost look like the stuff you make out of uh, composites made that you make decks out of. That as an alternative to the wood, they're supposed to last forever. I mean, I know they're more expensive, but if you didn't have to keep buying them all the time, it seems to me that might be a good uh, option as well. It sure is, and uh, there are. Um, I have one out here on my deck, and it's it's a heavy feeder. It's all recycled material, and it is it's tough. It's going to last a long time unless a, a tree falls on it or something. It's going to be there for a while. Uh, but I hope that's helpful, Tim, and I'll be talking to you in person so we can uh, visit on that Bef- a little bit more. I wanted Arlene. to chat. I was going to talk about you talking about feeders. I always have problems with the squirrels kind of uh, getting in mine and making a mess out of them. And I talked to Jan from Lake Crystal this morning, Al, and she called to to um, share some things with you. And and one of them was I I asked her about does she have problems with squirrels because she was talking about all the bird feeders she has. And she says, you know what I did to solve that? She says I gave them their own feeder. She said it's lower to the ground. I put black sun uh, black sunflower black oil sunflower seeds in them and she says and the squirrels don't bother all my other feeders so she says I think maybe they just get full with that one and I thought what a great idea maybe I should do that because they're climbing up the little pole where I've got juncos now and I've got cardinals in my yard that have been busy feeding for the sunflowers and then of course they disappear like that when my squirrels come along so I thought that might be a great idea have you ever done that? I, I have. Back oh. when I was a man with corn, I was the <laughs> owner of corn, Yes, I had corn, and I would put a pile of corn out. And I think most of the squirrels were pretty appreciative. We had, there was always one that said, no, nah, I'd rather get up and try to chew up your feeder than eat all this corn. But yeah, it does work, and uh, so that's a great idea. Jan also asked, and um, thanks for listening, Jan. She wants to know if brown creepers are common in uh, in the listening area. She's had some at the suet in her feeders over the past four weeks, and she said they run up the tree, and it's a lot of fun to watch them. And, boy, I, uh, I agree with you. I think they're just the coolest little guys. And I will say they are here, but hardly anybody sees them, Jan, unless they're looking like you are. And uh, so they are. Uh, this I know this winter season, uh, I've had some reported from Blue Earth County, Fairville County, Freeborn, Mauer, Olmstead, and Rice. And so they, they certainly are here, but not in great numbers. Well, she and, I asked her how many she saw. I said, well, do you have like a whole flock? And she said, there's at least no. a couple that I've seen, she said. And she says, they oh, just cool. hammer and hammer away at that suet. And she said to me, she says, you got to get yourself some suet so you can get some too. And I thought, well, you know, she actually goes to a, a hilltop meat uh, market and oh, gets yeah. her own uh, and makes her own suet and I thought well that's pretty cool so maybe that she just has a really good uh, recipe or something that she makes and attracts these cute little brown creepers and she says they're just so much fun to watch. They are one of the, the cutest little birds and one of the things Jan why a lot of people don't see them is they're little tiny brown birds against uh, the trunk of a tree so 
for a lot of folks, you just have to be looking at the right time to see them move. So you, they don't always see them there. And again, back when uh, I was a, a man who had corn, I would go to Sibbers Cardinal Grocery Store in beautiful downtown Heartland, population 314, and I would go to see Kenny Sibbers back there who was cutting up the meat and everything and putting it on a nice display under the lights that made it look even better than it was. And he would have suet, and he would save it for me and uh, just give it to me because he said, I, I have no need for this, so here you go. And I'd bring it home, and, oh, man, the birds just loved it. It was a, a, a great, a great uh, gift to bird them. Uh, also, uh, Karen, you got a text from Paul Shell, who lives in Faribault, asking, can birds thaw snow for water? And should I buy a heated bird bath? I just bought the components at Goodwill. Uh, thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening. Uh, birds can. Uh, yesterday, you know, again, with the sun the way it is now, it melts stuff. So I've, I shoveled off the deck, but there was a couple little bits of hard snow that I thought, well, I'll wait to let it soften up a little bit, and then I can uh, get it with a shovel. But it melted, and there were juncos on the deck drinking the melted water from that snow so their birds are so good at what they do they've been doing it forever they are survivors they'd win all the survivor tv series shows they'd be the winners because they're just good at what they do they know what they're doing out there that said they will eat snow paul but there's a bit of um disagreement or if you eat cold snow you know, as a kid, I remember going out and we'd eat snow because we ate pretty much everything. It it uses some calories and energy to melt that snow. When you eat it, your body has to work a little harder to do that. So, you know, regular water is better. Heated bird baths are wonderful. Again, there's a discussion. Some people say they can freeze up in there, but if it's a really severely cold day, like like we get every other day here, it seems like, but well below zero. Uh, it's not a bad idea to maybe put a couple boards or something across it so they can still drink, but they're not in there bathing. And uh, I, as I say, I haven't seen a whole lot, but uh, I have a good friend who has had a problem with a cardinal, and no, she has. So, But, yeah, heated bird baths are wonderful, and that's, that's cool components at Goodwill. You might uh, check. For uh, Tim Scott, Paul, and see if they got any bird feeders there at Goodwill we can get him. So that'd be a wonderful gift for Tim. Poor Tim. You know, he's just like me, so it's pretty easy to pick <laughs> on him. Uh, Arlene Carr, uh, she also asked what this, she said, these uh, little birds that I, I can't see them up close, or they sweep around along the roads and fields as I drive by. And there are also Lapland long spurs and uh, snow buntings there, but I, I'm sure the one she's seeing was a horned lark, so I sent her a photo, and she said, that, that's the bird. That's the bird I'm seeing out there. They're cool little birds. Uh, Dean Musing said this past Sunday, when I was walking outside at my daughter's in White Bear Lake, I heard a goose honking. When I looked up, I saw a small flock of six snow geese. I haven't seen any in many years. Are they very common in our area? Uh, boy, this, uh, again, Dean, they are and they aren't. 
we see things if we look and you look, so that's why you see it. They are here. Uh, some years we see a lot more than others. Some years they uh, will linger here. Other years they're in a hurry and they just shoot on by us. So they uh, certainly are here. Uh, some of their oh, their flight migration routes have changed a little bit through the years. So when I was a kid, uh, it seemed like I always saw more snow geese than Canada geese. Well, that's uh, it's harder to do that now. You have to get to a certain place. But they're certainly there. Dean, always great to hear from you. Chad Hines had a Carolina wren in Blue Earth County. And these are uh, great little birds. Uh, oh, I was walking a, a trail down in, uh, I was speaking at uh, down by the University of Missouri, and I'm walking a trail, and the Carolina wrens are in pairs down there, and they stay together all winter, and they're singing, and it was just, uh, it was like a midsummer day down there compared to here. So I really enjoyed walking those trails because it's um, some of our, I love walking, as everybody knows that listens to me for more than about a minute. It, but some of the places I walk, there's a bit of treachery afoot there, so you have to be kind of careful. So I hope everybody um, steps cautiously as they're out doing wonderful things. Oh, and I don't know who this was from, and I should know. I'll think of it right after the show. What do wild turkeys feed on during a Minnesota winter? We see the wild turkeys. They just seem, some days they seem to be everywhere, and we know they love mast. So they will eat a lot of acorns. It's one of their favorite food items. They'll just snarf them down. And this time of year, I see them out in the fields a lot, eating scattered corn remaining in the farm fields, mosses, buds, seeds, fern spores the ground below bird feeders and this is one of the places where i tell people if they want to see a turkey to find a place where livestock manure has been spread on fields those are very popular winter feeding sites for wild turkeys because sometimes livestock is not always very good in processing completely things like corn so there's a place out there where turkeys can find corn so you'll see them there very often. See, Al, uh, I wanted to, yeah. to, I had a friend from, uh, she's from Colorado, and she posted a picture she took out of her window at work, and it's a picture of a, a squirrel eating, but he's got a cleft palate. And she says, this cute little cleft oh. palate squirrel has survived at work. He gets fed daily. He's sure a cutie. And so she's got this picture of this little guy that oh. people just, you know, put food out for him all the time. And I, I suppose, you know, I guess, you know, people have, uh, different uh, genetic traits that you know might be different, and this one does too. And he's surviving, so I guess he must uh, have been able to adapt. And um, oh, a couple days ago, I got two photos of two different birds. One was a chickadee that had its upper mandible was very much longer than the lower one, and it came out and it bent down. And she said this little guy was coming to her feeders and kind of leaning to the side and still able to eat. I, I can't imagine how. And then there was another bird, and, oh, I can't remember what kind of bird it was, but it, it looked like it had flown hard beak first into a rock wall or something. Aww. 
the a bill, a part of the one bill was bent almost straight up in the air. And yet these two are, are surviving. That uh, instinct to survive or the, the will to survive is uh, amazing in, in all creatures. A first groundhog. I don't know how many saw um, groundhog on Groundhog Day. Probably nobody, more than likely, unless they saw it on TV. When can we first expect to see a groundhog in Minnesota each year? Probably March would be the earliest when they come out of their slumbers. You know, skunks are not true hibernators, so a skunk is more likely than a groundhog to see a shadow on Groundhog Day. So maybe we could change it to striped skunk. Uh, That'll probably never go. Uh, The 17th Annual International Festival of Owls will be taking place in Houston, Minnesota, March 1st through the 3rd. There'll be live owl programs, owl wood carving, and if you've never seen an owl carve wood, you've never lived, Mm -hmm. uh, there'll be wonderful wood carvers that are carving owls. Uh, Speakers from Mexico and Florida, and there'll be uh, pellet dissection. And uh, uh, kids love well, kids like me. I just love <laughs> Big dissecting kids. those. It's it's like a CSI thing. It's just, wow, this has been eating voles. And it's a, a great thing to do. So it's a wonderful, uh, small little town, Houston, Minnesota. And I highly recommend this for anybody and everybody. The last question I want to touch on is... And I get this uh, pretty much every year, but it says, is wild asparagus a real thing? Hmm. And I maybe I've never been chased by wild asparagus, but a lot of you remember in the 1960s, Yule Gibbons wrote a book about eating wild edibles, and he titled it Stalking the Wild Asparagus, which is a great name for a band. And I enjoy asparagus. I like asparagus a lot. One of my father's favorite dishes was creamed asparagus on toast. I came from a family that creamed corn, peas, chicken. They creamed pretty much everything, including asparagus. And I have to admit that was not my favorite way to eat asparagus, but uh, my dad loved it, and I loved him. So our asparagus patch on the farm was treated with respect it seemed as if everyone i knew grew asparagus and the wild plant we commonly see along roadsides is the same species as the tame asparagus oh okay so it's not really wild then it's it's or either that or the tame stuff is the wild stuff in our garden yeah, it's uh, it's escaped asparagus. So it, I think it's asparagus officinalis, maybe, is the second half of its uh, scientific name. It's got to be close. I know the first part is asparagus, but uh, wild asparagus produces without human assistance or manipulation. So asparagus plants are insect-pollinated, and its seeds are spread by birds, allowing domesticated crops to escape into the wild. So it does become a wild plant, and I know folks that will uh, put a a map out so they know where to go to get that wild asparagus each year because they just, uh, one tells me it's so much better than um, 
the tame stuff. And part of that reason might be just the way they breed some of the tame stuff. So if you have some of the later, there certainly be some difference in it. I do want to thank you, Karen, and thanks everybody for listening. I, I hope you all come to the cafe today where the food chain is missing a few links. The special is always a Heimlich maneuver, and gravy is considered a beverage. Uh, you know, I, I have to tell everybody that our cafe is for sale here before I go on. So if anybody, we have Pete's Repair in Heartland, and the cafe are both for sale. So if you're looking for, like, two jobs, there you go. Because this place where, again, where gravy is considered a beverage and now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and real cup holders, where grease is good and none of the food smells like feet. Well, hardly any. I stopped at the Eat Around It Cafe. Your mom probably told you that. You'd say, well, I don't like this being a hot dish. And she said, well, eat around it. I wanted to see the new font in the alphabet soup. We're easily entertained here. The Eat Around It Cafe is proud that its foods win every food fight. It's where the healthy food option is water in a clean glass. And the waitress asks for your next of kin before she takes your order. I didn't make the mistake of ordering the diet special again. You don't get any food with that special. You leave a generous tip, and then you exit the cafe. I try to be friends with the food and the weather, but winter doesn't come here to make friends. A fellow loafer had taken a tumble. Snow and its companion ice can lead to a black and blue backside. It's nature's autograph. The friendly waitress prescribed the best thing for bruises, mashed potatoes and gravy. Remember, folks, Heartland is while we're driving past. Uh, thanks for listening. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Thank you, Karen, for making it a great day. Thank you, Al, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. And uh, thanks to all our listeners for uh, chiming in and, and giving us the questions and sharing their observations. We always enjoy hearing from you.